I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Father, thank you so much for preserving your word. Thank you that you have uh, promised your spirit to illuminate, to teach us. And Lord, we would ask that you would uh, deal with every single heart this morning. For those who have yet to come to Christ, may they see that they are in the flesh, incapable of changing their nature, and that they would see because of sin they're separated from you, and that you would show, show them the glorious gospel, the good news that a Savior is provided, that you would enable them by repentance and faith to come to Jesus and leave here changed. And Father, for your children, uh, that may be, be keenly aware of the responsibility, the privilege to be spiritually minded, to think on things of the Spirit, that we may enjoy the, the riches of assurance in what the Spirit provides, life and peace. And so, Lord, we just commit our time to you. We ask that much attention will be made uh, of the Lord Jesus and that we would behold the King in his beauty. And we thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Wasn't this song singing awesome today? Those are incredible songs. I think we should just keep on singing and singing and singing. Um, Romans chapter 8 and verse 5 and 6. We are uh, working our way through arguably one of the great chapters of the Bible. It is a favorite of many and has been the favorite of many for uh, decades, centuries. Because it it is the chapter of assurance. It actually is the substance of, of Romans. It is the meat that teaches us not only personal assurance, but how to uh, cooperate with the Spirit in putting to death the deeds of the flesh and to live the Spirit-filled life. Now, as we go through uh, Romans, and I've encouraged you to read Romans 6, 7, and 8 as one unit because it defines the whole of the Christian life. Romans chapter 8 has a parallel of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is full of contrast. Uh, If in Adam, if in Christ. So we have that. And in Romans chapter 8, we have the parallel in the flesh, in the spirit. So in a very real way, 6 and 7 are just a bridge between uh, Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8. Though Romans chapters 6 and 7 with 8 define the Christian experience. Our union in Christ, our death uh, with him in his crucifixion and her resurrection with him in his is 6 Romans 7 is the daily reality that we're not in heaven yet. And then Romans chapter 8 is the assurance as we come out of Romans uh, chapter 7. So what we've covered uh, so far, uh, go back to last week. We've been in Romans now I think three or four weeks uh, of chapter 8. We've got a long ways to go. There's so much in this treasure chest to uh, unfold. But what we find in uh, this passage, passage we just read is the contrast between being in the flesh and being in the spirit. 
And as we saw uh, last week, is that the mind plays a critical part in the Christian life. In fact, it plays the most important part in the Christian life. We will see later on as we unfold chapter 8, uh, we, we will see that the Christian life has order to it. It's your mind that is informed. It is your heart that is changed, your affections, that leads to the exercise of your will in obedience. And that's always the process of spiritual growth. Mind, heart, will. And those combined produce uh, the whole of the Christian life. And so we see Paul uh, spending ex- a lot of time here on the mind in chapter 8. And let us be re- uh, recall what Solomon says about our mind. And let that be an evaluation of your own life. He says in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. How you think determines how you live. And that makes the mind so important in all of Christian living because it determines whether we are in the flesh or whether we are in the spirit. And you often hear the, uh, uh, the term whenever you're called to give an account whether it be in parenting to a child or in a marriage or at work or even dealing with ourselves. How often have you said the question to someone or to yourself after you've done something, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? I think it was one of my, one of my favorite ones as a parent. You know, what or were you thinking? But if you, but if you uh, take it in a broader way, it's said a lot. Why is that? Because our behavior is driven by a thoughtful process. Our behavior isn't just something that just happens. It is determined by a thoughtful process, albeit at times impulsive, but nevertheless, how you think determines how you live. And as you see the mind in the Christian experience and compare to what's happening in society, we have a mindless society. We have a society that does not know how to think. It's not informed. It doesn't read like it should. And what it is informed by is not anywhere near what God would have us as the human mind needs to be developed. And that has not not, uh, had its influence on the church. Christians, for the most part, in my estimation, and even in my own experience, Christians just don't think right. We don't think right. And we don't think... In, in, a, in a long meditative way. And how we think determines how we live. We saw last week in verse 5. Uh, the mind set on the things of the flesh. I just want to do this quickly. The, the review. And we see then that those who live by the flesh. Set their minds on the things of the flesh. So we will see here this, inter, this intersection. Between living and thinking. In the flesh. If you set your mind on the things of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and such as like these. The list goes on and on. That's from Galatians chapter 5. If you find yourself living a life under the influence and even the control of the flesh, it's because your mind is, is still dead. You are dead to the spiritual things that would promote godliness. So we saw that the mind set on the things of the flesh, and it's a good evaluation, is to ask yourself, even as a profession, professing Christian, is my mind more centered on the things of the flesh? Jesus would say, out of the heart. 
comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And let's remember that the biblical definition includes the heart. I'm, I'm sorry, includes the, uh, the mind, it's the center of our personalities to include our mind, our will, and our affections. We also see in this text, verses 6 through 8, the consequences of living in the flesh. There's death, that is uh, spiritual death, and that is eternal death, physical death, and then there's hostility towards God. He views us as enemies. We are enemies of God if we live in the flesh. And we also cannot please God. As much as we may think or we may try to gain his favor by religiosity, we cannot do that. We have no ability if we're in the flesh to please God. So now let's take a look at verses 5 and 6 and the contrast, the the mindset on the things of the Spirit. And, And let me encourage you, I just mentioned this, is to evaluate yourself and to see, is your mind set on the carnal things of the world? Are you constantly finding yourself bent towards the things of the flesh? And we'll talk about what a Christian mind looks like today. A Christian mind is that you occasionally turn it on to think about Christian things. That's not a Christian mind. For instance, you can be in the flesh and come to church on Sunday and sing songs and listen and read your Bible, and you can be dead, not a Christian, in the flesh. It isn't a switch that you turn on. We're talking about the nature of the being, the nature of the person. And those in, uh, in Adam are of the flesh. It means that you can't do anything of a spiritual nature. Conversely, what we see here in verse 5 and 6, we see the spirit. Well, let's read that again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Do you see the contrast? Now, there's also a, uh, a commonality. It's to set their minds on the things uh, of the flesh, or you set your minds on the things of the spirit. But here is the difference. Is that those who set their minds on the flesh, they do that by nature, and that's all they can do. Is if you're naturally born, you are in Adam, everything about you is in the flesh, all your thinking is in the flesh... Genesis 6.5 says that the Lord looked and saw that the thoughts of men was evil continually. So that's you in the flesh. However, in verse 5 where he says, But those who according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's by nature too. But it's not by your original nature. It's by the nature of being born again. Born once in Adam, born again in Christ. And there becomes the difference. And Peter would tell us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now listen to this. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, the effectual word, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature. That's what we're talking about when we talk about setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. By nature, you have inherited or you've been given the divine nature that enables you to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. If you're in the flesh, you may read this and say, I really don't get it, but it sounds good. I'm going to set my mind on the Spirit. You can't. You can't. You have no ability whatsoever. And I would go as far as say you have no desire. That's the marvel of new birth. 
Because new birth gives you not only the divine nature, but it gives you all the wonders of the desires that have radically changed from what you were in the flesh. And so again, evaluate yourself. Do you find yourself, when you leave here, at, uh, you know, after the potluck and I, or the providence or the, what, what we, the fellowship lunch, after you leave, <laughs> after you leave, uh, after you leave, I would ask you this. Do you find your mind resorting back to the world and the temporal things of the world and all the things of the world and that you may pick up your Bible next Sunday and come again and turn the switch on? Uh, well, you're not. Because what you are and what you th- or what you think is what you are. And that's not measured by uh, 10.30 to noon on a Sunday. It's measured by your life. All of your life, as we will see. The Apostle Paul would say, we also have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And that connects us to what we're looking at today. But those who live according to the, to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And Paul would say, but we have the mind of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we have a divine, you know, a divinity about us. What that refers to, the context, is that because of the ministry of the Spirit, we have the illumination of the truths of Christ. We're able to sing that wonderful hymn, The King is All His Beauty, and know it. Not just sing it, but to know it. And to long for it. And to have a foretaste of heaven in your soul. And I pray that when you've sung that hymn, and you think about being spiritually minded, that that indeed has been your experience already today. That you are looking forward to that great day when the song we sang today becomes literal reality. That you see the king in all his beauty, not by faith, but by sight. And that's part of what it means to be spiritually minded, as we will see. Now, as we read these verses here, And this is something that's extremely important for us to grasp. Is that to be spiritually minded is a work of the Spirit, but it doesn't leave us without responsibility. And I I often wonder if Christians, if they're just waiting for this, this holy zap to come down upon them and make them spiritually mature or make them obedient. I used to think that myself. Lord, I want this. Please give me this. Give me, give me, give me, give me. And I'm waiting for it and it's never come. And the reason why is because you have a personal responsibility to be a spiritually minded person. See, the thing thing with the person in the flesh, they also have the personal responsibility. Just because they can't keep God's law, and just because uh, they can't be spiritually minded, that doesn't take away the responsibility. Inability does not remove responsibility. Adam took care of that. When Adam, took, when Adam took care of that in the Garden of Eden and he failed miserably, guess what he did? He passed down to you the responsibility to God for his law and for obedience to him, but he also passed down your inability to fulfill that. And you can't say in a victimized culture that we live in today, well, I, if, if, if I can't do it, then I'm not responsible. That's not how God works is that you inherited a nature that maintains responsibility to your creator for the obedience to his law inside and out perfectly for all of your life. And if you can't do it, you will reap the, uh, the consequences of that disobedience, but you will never be able to say, I couldn't do it, and so it's not fair. Responsibility does not take away. Inability does not take away responsibility. So that's another thing in these verses we're looking at according to the Spirit. According to the Spirit. 
And there's two things we see in these verses. It says, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's the first thing. Who are those who live according to the Spirit? That's the believer who sets their minds. That's a personal responsibility. Is that you and I have a personal responsibility to set our minds. And that word set means to be fixed. It means to be bent towards. It's an orientation that is applied to the mind. And when he says set, I gave you the nautical illustration last week. And when you set your mind to something, that is an all-consuming event. That is an all-consuming an occurrence. It is a present tense verb that, that means continual. And in the Navy, when we say that we are setting to sea an anchor detail and we're leaving the pier, that's what we're doing. Everything is given over to that evolution and we're all fixed on that until it's complete. It's the same thing with the spirit-minded Christian. There's never a time that you're not to be spirit-minded. Is There's no such thing as a secularized part of the Christian. Everything matters. Everything matters spiritually. That means that there's, there's nothing that is dull and mundane in the Christian experience. I, I had someone tell me one time, I just don't like going to church. It's so boring. And I was like, boring? And then I said, is your Christian life boring? Well, yeah. I said, are you a Christian? Because think about it. You tell me how a Christian could ever be bored. You have a devil to fight. You have a flesh to subdue. You have a world to conquer. And you have a Christ to love. Tell me how you could be bored any day of your life. The spirit-minded Christian will not, that would not even enter the mind. Is that we have within us the capacity as we will see, unlike the flesh, to fulfill our responsibility to set our minds on things above, to set our minds on the spirit, uh, things which he says. So that's the first thing we want to look at this morning, is our responsibility, which is revealed in verse 5. Those who set their minds on the things of the spirit. And, and this is another thing a Christian can't do. You know, a Christian, not, not only does a Christian, uh, I don't understand Christian boredom, but here's another one. Here's another one is you can never read these verses or you can never confront any sin in your life and say, I can't. You, if you are enslaved to whatever sin is you're enslaved to as a Christian and you're finding yourself in a constant state of defeat, it's not because God has not given you all the resources in the gospel to conquer that sin. There is nothing that we can't overcome. And the reason why that we don't is because there's something still within us. It's part of that Adamic nature. It's part of that, that inside of us. You know why we don't conquer certain sins? Because there's a part of us that still likes it. We still enjoy it. And sin is pleasurable. Moses said it was. But he denied the pleasures of sin that was in Egypt. To suffer with, with the people of God. And so when we look at these, this here. And you find it. I'm not saying it's easy. And please don't. I'm not trying to make it easy. It's not. That's why Jesus would say that narrow is the way. And few there be to find it. Because if you think the Christian life is easy, then I would, I would argue you don't understand the Christian life. 
And so what we have here then is that we have a personal responsibility, verse 5, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And remember the verse, I mean, the tense of the verb, it is a continual process. That means there's no ceasefires. There's no time that the devil, the world, and your flesh is going to give you a pass or give you a break. Never. And that's what, what happens. That's what happens in the Christian life. You grow weary. What do you grow weary of? You grow weary of the fight. And why would Paul say, let us not grow weary in well-doing? It's not just about growing weary because i got to do a wanna for an hour and a half a week. That's not what the weariness is. And that's not a weariness. We got great kids, and Awana is awesome. I love working with it. It's the weariness of the battles that we face. It's the weariness of like I'm failing, and I'm failing, and I'm failing, but you get right back up to slug it out another day. I thought that Ben did a good job of reading Nehemiah, and that was some powerful verses that apply to the Christian life. Did you notice how it ended? And they never took their clothes off or their weapons. There's a wonderful, wonderful Christian principles within that book. Matter of fact, Nehemiah may be one of the best leadership manuals ever written. It also is one of the great books on how to toil in the midst of enemy territory. So, let's t- so the first thing we want to look at is our responsibilities in verse 5. And then we will look at uh, the blessings. The blessings or the fruit of being spiritually minded. It's in verse 6. Notice what he says. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. How many of you want your life to be characterized by life and peace? Every one of you. Every one of you. And the spirit is, is, has been given to provide that for us. It's in contrast to what he says about living in the flesh. All you have is death. The spirit gives us life and peace. So let's look then. At, um, uh, how, do we, how do we form this spiritual mindedness? How do we set our minds? And then we'll look at, in particular, the things of the Spirit. But how do we do this? Well, I kind of alluded to this already, but understand this. The Christian life is a cooperative effort with God. You must get that. Is that you and I are responsible for God, before God to live the Christian life. But I have not one single ounce of strength to live the Christian life. And neither do you. You say, well, that's kind of, that's kind of a, a contradiction. In our eyes only. It's not in God's eyes. Is that God has given us everything we need. He says in, in 1 Peter, He's given us all things that pertain to godliness. And so we have the ability to live the Christian life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Turn to it with me if you would. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Paul would identify in chapter, five, or chapter 8, verse 5, that we are responsible uh, to be spirit-minded. Well, wh- how, how do we do that? It's cooperative with our God. Philippians 2, chapter t- uh, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Stop there for a minute. Who works that out? We work that out. But who also works it out? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And what is his good pleasure? Is us working out our salvation, which culminates in us being like Jesus. So what we find in this Philippian passage is really the key understanding to being spiritually minded. 
is I have this personal responsibility to work out salvation, new life in Christ, in the spirit of fear and trembling. And fear and trembling is the fear of God, and the trembling is to realize that in and of yourself, you can't do this. The fear and trembling are two different words. And the fear would have, would have the, the, the fear of God controlling our lives. And the trembling is to realizing how weak we are without the power of God. And now a, a significant part of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, it draws us back to Romans chapter 8. And you can go back to that, Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. The significant part of working out your salvation is in your mind. This working out your salvation is an external. It's an internal transformation that leads to external. Because remember what happened in the flesh? They that live according to the flesh, external, mind the things of the flesh. So it's always, it even applies for those not saved. How you think determines how you live. The person outside of Christ, it's all about this world. It's all about the pleasure. It's all about the attainment. It's all about the things of this world. And that controls their mind, so it controls their activity. Follow someone around for a week and you will know if they're a Christian or not. Follow someone around for a week. And you will know if their mind is set on the flesh or if it's set on the spirit. Actually, you'll probably know that in about 24 hours. Actually, you might be able to know it within two hours. Because it's a constant. Everything is interpreted through eternity. Everything is interpreted through what the spirit would have us. The things of the spirit, which is in verse 6. And So now let's talk briefly about, well, maybe briefly, um, Develop the discipline of spiritual mindedness. How do, we, how do we set our minds? What does that mean in regards to this resolve that, that we're talking about? The Christian has the power of choice. The person in the flesh does not. You choose what to set your mind on. And if you choose to not discipline yourself in spiritual mindedness, and then the world is going to conform your thinking. Because as a Christian, you are constantly swimming upstream against culture. A rapid river. And if you quit the discipline of spiritual mindedness, you will be swept down. Not that you will lose your salvation, but you certainly won't enjoy your salvation. This is the same resolve. When Paul says in verse 5, set their, their minds on the things of the Spirit, it is the same type of resolve that Jesus models in Luke 9. Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Paul says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Jesus, it was written by Luke, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him and who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Do you know what Jesus did not succumb to the very thing that we succumb to all the time that keeps us from setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And that is the age of distraction. We live in the age of distraction. J.C. Ryle said of this, of Jesus setting his uh, face in Jerusalem, quote, he never flinched for a moment from the work that he had undertaken. His heart was set on paying the price for our redemption. The steady determination with which our Lord Jesus Christ regarded his own crucifixion and death, end quote. 
This is the same personal resolve we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Set your minds on, on the things of the Spirit. And also in Colossians 3, where Paul says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And you know what's implied with that? Is the exercise of a resolved will. And here's another thing about this. These aren't suggestions, they're imperatives. They're commands. And so you say, well, I just don't do very well with my mind. My thinking goes all over the place. Well, I got that, believe me. Hence, we live in the age of distraction. Your, your attention span, my attention span, is shortened by the culture that we live in. And as a result, we don't know how to meditate biblically. We don't know how to spend long periods of time beholding the king and his beauty. We need to get back and learn that the Bible teaches biblical meditation. It teaches periods of, of, of being alone and discipline your mind to right thinking, which is spirit-minded thinking. And so if we're going to develop a spirit-mindedness on these things of the, of the spirit, which Paul says that is our charge as someone who is not, not in the flesh, we need to define what is it to be spiritually-minded. I've already alluded to the fact is it's not just turning on the switch. That's part of it. But I want you to listen to a couple definitions here. The first one's mine, and then I want you to listen to a couple other ones. To be spiritually minded is to have a mind which views all of life through the biblical lens of God's sovereignty, the fall, the transitoriness of life, and the unfolding of God's redemptive work in Christ in the world. That's what it means to be spiritually minded. It's to see all things through God's sovereignty. How many of you are so up in a lather about what's going on in our country, the wickedness of leadership on all levels? How many of you are so up in, up in arms with that? And I hope you don't think that a change of leadership in Washington is the answer. Because it's not. It's a change in leadership when the Prince of Peace comes. And he sets up his eternal kingdom. But if you're spending more time wrapped up around what's going on in our culture, and you're seeing all the corruption, and it's causing you to stay awake at night, and you're worried about that. You're not spiritual-minded. Because what you've done is that you have shelved God's sovereignty in your life. And that you're living not spiritually-minded. To be honest, you're living fleshly-minded. And we know what that means. That means fleshly-minded people are outside of Christ. And I'm not saying that you're not a Christian, but you, if you're so wrapped up in what's going on horizontally, you're forgetting the whole big picture of even why we're here. And you can't interpret anything unless you start in the Garden of Eden and you trace the redemptive thread of Christ's work through all the prophets and all of the gospels and all of church history. And you see that the reason why America is like it is, not because of corrupt leadership, it's because of corrupt humanity. It's because of total depravity that makes us like we are with no sense of God and no desire for God. And do we honestly think that God is going to allow us to fix our problems by godless means? The answer is no. And so to be spiritually minded then is to see everything through the lens of God's sovereignty, the fall, the brevity of life, and the unfolding of God's redemptive work in Christ. There's no way a Christian should be hopeless in the world we live in. There's no way that we should lay awake at night just fretting what's happening. In fact, I would say that we 
as the church in the 21st century, if we get a hold of this, I believe that we have some of the greatest opportunities for the gospel that we haven't had. Because people are seeing, unsaved people are seeing the folly of trusting man. They're seeing the folly of it. <clears throat> I don't care what, what side of the aisle you're on in Congress. You're seeing the folly of man. And so people are saying, is there any hope? And then you have people that are so afraid. Look at crime. Look what's happening out there. People are so afraid. So don't look at this and don't let us bunker down waiting for the second coming. Let us see through the lens of being spiritually minded that God has given us so many opportunities for the gospel and that people want to talk about spiritual things. I, I tell you that uh, we talk about it a lot. It's not because it's the only thing we, we have, but um, a couple things. I work in Awana. I work in the TNT. There are some young people in that group that they probably know more Bible than some of us. I mean, they are committed to the Scripture. They are committed to that. Yeah, I know that they're, they're memorizing these verses, and, but you know what's happening? And what did you hear early? We heard, we heard Calvin Bible. Wasn't that awesome? I mean, we heard, we heard a little one, a little one being raised in the things of God. And we hear he doesn't even know how to talk sentences yet. And one of the words he's talking is Bible. Isn't that awesome? It's because he's got spiritually minded parents. And it's important that we understand that to be spiritually minded doesn't occur from 1030 to 12. And if you think that's what it is, you're missing it. To be spiritually minded is to see all things through the lens of God's sovereignty, man's fallenness, the brevity of life, and the unfolding of God's redemptive work in Christ. Don't fear what's going on in our culture. Be excited that we get to share the gospel with people that are afraid. Here's another definition. The late Dr. James Boyce, the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, he said this, quote, Thinking Christianly is not a matter of thinking about Christian subjects as opposed to thinking about secular subjects, but rather thinking in a Christian way about everything. Having a Christian mind, everything. That means shoveling snow with a Christian mind. That means mowing the grass with a Christian mind. That means cultivating your marriage with a Christian mind. It means raising your kids with a Christian mind. Harry Blamere, I quoted uh, the book from him last week, he said this, quote, There is nothing in our experience, however trivial, worldly, or even evil, which cannot be thought about Christianly, end quote. So let me ask you that, this question. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not following you home and spending 24 hours with you. But let me ask you this question. Do you think Christianly? Do you see your job if you complain about your job, you know what? You're not thinking Christianly. You're not thinking Christianly. You're not spiritually minded about your job. Do you know that sovereignly, if you're at a job and you don't like it, and you're complaining about your boss, or you're complaining about your job, you know what you're really doing? You're complaining about God who sovereignly put you there to be a witness for the gospel. That's why you're there. That's what it means to think Christianly. That's what it means to think spiritually minded. You say, well, you don't know my boss. No, but I know the God who put you there. And that changes everything. It really does. And now in order to develop this spiritual mindedness, you've got to be committed to a couple things. One, you have to be committed to mind renewal. We'll look at that in Romans 12, 1 and 2 when we get to Romans 12. 
But do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul would also say in Ephesians chapter 4, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Philippians chapter 4 would tell us, brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. That's an imperative. Friends, spiritual mindedness is not the power of positive thinking. It's not a rewrite of uh, what Norman Vincent Peale's book. It's not about positive thinking. Or it's not about some warm motion, uh, motivational speech that masquerades as a biblical sermon. It's none of that. We don't win the spiritual battle for the mind by secular and humanistic positive thinking. And it's out there. There was a little boy, he came home from school, he was all dejected about his math class. He said to his dad, Dad, I think I'm going to fail my math quiz tomorrow. His dad said, Son, don't be so negative. You're a good student. Be positive. Be positive. The boy thought for a moment, and he said, Okay, Dad, I'm absolutely positive I'm going to fail my test tomorrow. <laughs> You have no strength and there's nothing in the earth that can renew your mind apart from the Spirit taking the Word of God and renewing your mind. And if you look in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 5 again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So what are the things of the Spirit? See, this is the, if you, it's why you've got to be in a place that we go verse by verse in books. And one, you can't avoid hard things. You know, though, uh, we're going to skip Romans 9, 10. And, uh, but you can't, you can't skip, you, can't, you have to go through it all. Hard things have to be talked about. Uh, the second thing is it, it avoids us from skipping over important things because we may not think they're important. For instance, look at verse 5. Have you meditated long on what he says, that we are to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Have you meditated? What are the things of the Spirit? What are they? Do you think on those things? If you don't know them, how do you think on them? And if you don't have those in you, how do you set your mind on those things? So it always goes back to our thinking determines our living. We could spend months, if not years, talking about the things of the Spirit. But we've always established that to develop a spiritual mindedness, it is a constant renewal of our mind, a personal resolve that we are responsible for, that there is no, there is no separation from the sacred to the secular, for lack of a better words. That everything in your life has spiritual implications. If that's not true, then why are we going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for everything? Well, we are. Why? Because everything matters. And if you really want to get down to being spiritual minded, you know what all this life is? All this life? All this life is for one thing. Is to prepare us for judgment. Really. And that shouldn't scare you as a Christian. It should make you wise. Because Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 and 16 says, um, uh, Do not walk as the unwise, but walk as the wise. Redeeming or making the best of time for the days are evil. I think one of, the, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the great challenges we face as Christians is that um, you ever hear that term or you ever hear yourself, I just don't have the time. It's like that question, what were you thinking? How about this one? Have you ever said, I just don't have the time? Okay. Um, 
I would argue that that is not a good thing to say. Because when you say that, I would like for you to take your 168 hours a week and chart every hour. And you're going to find gaps that you wasted. And you might find large gaps that you wasted. It may not be long periods at a time. It may be a half hour here. It may be 15 minutes here. It may be 30 minutes here. But if you add that up, 168, and take ample hours for hygiene and sleep and all that, you're still going to find, and your eyes are going to go like this, you're going to say, I waste a lot of time. To be spiritually minded is not only to think on the things of the Spirit, and is not the things of the Spirit, His very word that says, redeem the time. So that's one thing. But I want us to focus on the time we have left. Uh, two things of the Spirit. Two things of the Spirit that we are to be spiritually minded on. And the first one is this. Is that the spiritually minded Christian is not only interpreting all of life through, as I mentioned, God's sovereignty, the fall, the transitoriousness of life, and the redemptive work of Christ. But here's what the Christian that's spiritually minded is fixed upon. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 15, But when the Helper comes, the Spirit of God, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, He proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And what did, uh, was the last words of Jesus? And the Spirit of God will come, and He will bear witness through you of me. Power will come. Don't concentrate on that you're a powerful person. Concentrate that you're a weak person with God's power to proclaim Christ. There's a difference. Because if you, see, if you concentrate on how much you're a power, powerful person or how gifted you are, you're, there's a danger that you can concentrate on the power and the gift. And, and, and I know this is controversial, but I'm going to say this. God did not give the Spirit of God primarily to gift you. He gave the Spirit of God primarily to make you like Jesus. And how's that happen? By the operation of the gifts as well as your obedience to Him. Jesus says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and is they that bear witness about me. The spirit-minded person, because of the spirit's work within of bearing witness, he's revealing Christ to that person on an ongoing basis. And you want to know if you're growing as a Christian, then you should see this intensifying, all-consuming desire to know Christ to love Christ, to worship Christ, to be like Christ, to be with Christ. That is the very essence of the spiritually minded person. That person cannot get enough of the Lord Jesus. They see the King in all His beauty. They are tasting the goodness of the Lord. It is the beauty of Christ that begins to cultivate in the spiritually minded person that you find yourself absolutely obsessed with the person of Christ. And it's not about just knowing the truth of his deity, the oath about his redemptive plan, all that. It is the beauty of the person of Christ. When Paul says that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection, it wasn't that he would have the ability to articulate the riches of Christ. It's because he was so enamored with what God did in Christ for him that he couldn't get enough of Jesus. It was, it was Psalm 73, 25, where Asaph would say, Whom have I in heaven, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Let me ask you, beloved, could you say that right now in the face of God? Could you look in the face of God right now? 
Because the Spirit is working a spiritually mindedness in us, disciplining us to think on the things of the Spirit, primarily the person of Christ. Could you look at heaven right now and say, Father, you know my heart. There's not a single person. There's not a single relationship. There's not a single pursuit. There's not a single goal. There's not a single desire that I have that is above your son. That's what Asaph says. I don't want you to feel like you're an utter failure. Well, actually, I do. I want you to feel humbled and absolutely crushed because it's only the broken people that see the beauty of the king. It's not the proud person. It's not the religious person. It is a spiritually minded person that has experienced new birth in Christ, that have made them in Christ, that they see their, their brokenness. They see how poor in spirit they are. They see how they mourn. The Beatitudes characterize them, and they cry out, Oh, you're so worthy, the King and all his beauty. You're so worthy. It's that person that Jesus reveals his beauty. This isn't heartless knowledge, it's affectionate. It's the affection. You know one of the great privileges in heaven? One of the great privileges in heaven is that we are going to forever drink at the bottomless well of Christ's love and in return love him without the fallenness of Romans 7. Is that we are going to finally be free from all this. And if that isn't beating in your heart, you're sick of this world. You're sick of, if that isn't beating in your heart, you're not a spiritually minded person. The Christian is extremely uncomfortable in this world. They're so homesick for the king. They can't wait. They're sick of failing him. They're tired of sin. They're tired of being lukewarm. They're tired of the apathy that so easily settles into our hearts. We're tired of singing the king and all is our beauty and all we're thinking about is what's going to happen during the week. The spirit of God, what he works in us. Set your mind on the things of the spirit. The first thing is the person of Christ. Let me ask you, how many times have you been in so-called fellowship settings that the name Jesus has never been mentioned? That there's been no sharing of what Christ is to you in your life? I've been guilty of that. What we can talk about all the good things that God is doing, and we can talk about even our church, all the great things that God is doing, but it's, it, I think God is far more pleased when we talk about His Son. And we talk about Him in the context of us being his children, and that the Spirit will generate within us this, this hunger to know more of Christ. Here's the, next, the second thing in the things of the Spirit. If his role is to elevate Christ, which it is, then we set our minds on the person of Christ. We also set our minds on the Word of God. You say, well, that's given. Well, but is it? Remember Job? Remember Job? Yeah, that's our next book, by the way. Um, so, remember what Job said? I treasure your words more than my necessary food. Read Psalm 119. That's, that's your homework. Read Psalm 119. And I want you to circle in your Bible how often the psalmist proclaims his love for the word. And how often, how often he says, with my whole heart. Now, remember, these, the psalms mostly are prayers. So, he's writing... And he's writing this psalm, and he's transparent before his God, and he is confident that what he tells God is true. I seek you with my whole heart. I love your word more than all the treasures of the world, all the gold. Well, the Spirit of God generates within us 
not only this insatiable desire for Christ, but he also does the insatiable desire for the word. I know we're almost out of time, but turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to just show you how practical this is, how the Spirit of God does his work in the spiritually minded Christian to make the word dominant. And it's not that you would have it, all these knowledge so that you would, you would be able to cite all the great doctrines and, 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 and quote the great uh, uh, the Puritans and people from church history. The Spirit of God gives the Word of God so that we will know the living Word of God. Oh, beloved, please read your Bible, the written Word of God, with the, with the, with the whisper to heaven, let me see the living Word of God. Let me see Christ. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. And I want you to see in here the, 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 the marriage between the Word of God, the Gospel, the Holy Spirit, and, what, and the impact it had on these people. These are young Christians. They're not very old. Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering for our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, Paul had a certainty about these believers, loved by God that he's chosen you. Because our gospel, that is the spirit work of the gospel, new birth, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit with His Word in the believer. And look what happens. They were imitators of mature Christians. They were imitators of the Lord. They suffered joyfully for the Lord. They were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 7, they went everywhere as being examples of believers. That's what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be so enamored with Christ. And that the Word of God is so working mightily in us because of the Holy Spirit's Spirit-generated, spirit-mindedness of the Word that we became like these people. We live with conviction. We, we are imitators of the Lord Himself. Uh, we suffer well. We have the joy of the Spirit, and we can't hold it in. We have to go. We have to tell people. And not only do we tell them, but we also affirm our life before them. An example to all the believers. So, Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 8 that if we're of the Spirit, we develop a spiritual mindedness. It's a personal resolve that we have to commit to this in the power of God's strength. In that spiritual mindedness, the Spirit will take us to meditate on the things of the Spirit, primarily the person of Christ. Second, the Word of God, which takes us to Christ. And then quickly, within, within three minutes, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. You can go back there. Three minutes. I wonder why Barrett's laughing. Um, the fruit of spiritual mindedness. Take a look at the end of verse 6. This is, what, this is what we get as we're spiritually minded and we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, the person of Christ, the Word of God. Verse 6 tells us the blessings. For to set the mind in the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Do you know how influential that is in culture? A Christian who is living out what the Spirit gives in life, and in peace. The world out there knows no peace. And if you live with a, a consistency of peace in the midst of tough circumstances, do you know what you're going to have? You're going to have people look at you and say, why are you like this? Because you're going to be so different. You're going to be so like, how come you're not rattled about this? 
And you know what you're going to do? You're going to be like the Thessalonians. Because the word dwells in you richly with power, you are going to tell them about the king in all of his beauty. And you are going to see that as an obligation of delight. Quickly, three things about life. He says the spirit of life. There's three aspects of the life that the spirit of God gives us. The first, he gives us new life or new birth. John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says you must be born again. He would further go down and tell us you must be born of the Spirit. So if you you are thinking about what we've been reading, say, this is what I want. If you haven't experienced the first step of the Spirit, then you can't be spiritually minded. You have to be given a spiritual mind. And that is new birth. So when you read this, the Spirit gives life. He gives new birth. That's new life. But He also gives us eternal life. That's John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. And Jesus would give us eternal life. I was in a conversation with someone. And um, it doesn't go, they, uh, this person doesn't go to our church. And this individual asked me, well, what's eternal life? And uh, I said, to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Oh, no, no, eternal life is living forever. I said, no, that's immortality. I said, we're, we're all immortal, whether you're a believer or not. Immortal, you're going to live forever. Well, I don't, I don't know if I, I believe that. Okay, well, this person went back and asked their pastor. And I'm thinking, well, I don't want to get into this. I don't want any part of that. But went into their, and, and asked their, their pastor, what is eternal life? And he says, live forever. And so she looked at him and said, no, that's not right. <laughs> so no, it's to know God and to know Jesus Christ. I say that story just for, for this reason. You know how easy it is for us to take words in the Bible and make it or define it as we think it is and not what it is? Eternal life is not living forever. Eternal life is about quality. And Jesus said it's to know him. So the Spirit of God gives us new birth. That's first life. He gives us eternal life. That is knowing Christ and growing in Christ. And then finally, he gives us abundant life. And that would be John 10.10. Jesus says, I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. You know what abundantly means? It means it's not boring. Well, it means more than that. But it means that you would have life fully overflowing. And I would, I would venture to say that we could apply the fruit of the Spirit to that. It's an overflowing life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can you imagine what a church would be like if all of us were that way all the time? Imagine what our marriages would be like. Imagine what the, the workplace would be like. Imagine what our community would be like if we had Christians who were enjoying the Spirit who gives life would give that, and we went out there, and we lived that before a watching world. They would ask us once again, why are you like this? I want what you have. And then finally, Paul says that the Spirit of God not only gives us life, but he gives us peace. And that peace is twofold. It's the objective peace where justification by faith puts you right before God, regardless of your conduct. It's based on Christ fulfilling the law and his death and crucifixion. We studied that in Romans chapter 5. But it also means subjective peace. Philippians chapter 4, the peace that passes all understanding. It's the peace that allows you and me to live above the circumstances of life. We don't have to give in to the flesh. Why? Because we have a different nature. When we give in to the flesh, whether it be impatience, frustration, anger, whatever, that's because it's choice. Because we have failed to set our mind on things of the Spirit. And when we don't set our mind on things of the Spirit, which is Christ and the Word, then we're going to default to what's left of the remaining sin. And it will never bring uh, honor, to, uh, honor to God because we're supposed to put to death 
mortify that, and we'll see that in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the very practical truths of your word, and we realize in and of ourselves we can't do this, but we do know that, that, that you will show us and you will help us, and it begins with being spiritually minded. May you uh, help us to be so disciplined in our thinking, what we put into our minds to shape it. May it be you, may it be your son, may it be all through your word that we learn to think like Christians are, and that's all the time in everything, interpreting all of life for what it is. And Father, may you also uh, help us um, to focus on the King and all his beauty. That's what we're here for, is to behold Jesus. And I pray that that would be uh, our prayer, our earnest prayer. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.